0: Hello. This is Ted Floyd. I am the editor of the American Birding Association's Birding Magazine, and I've been out birding for much of the past week. This is my favorite time of the year with the nesting season in high gear. It's also my favorite time of the year because I get to interact so extensively right now with young birders at ABA Teen Birding Camps in connection with the ABA Young Birder of the Year program and simply out in the field enjoying birds and nature together. This is also the time of the year when the ABA kicks into its Nesting Season Appeal, an urgent mid-year campaign to raise money for all our Young Birder programs, as well as the many public services like this podcast, which require funding beyond basic memberships. To contribute to the Nesting Season Appeal, please donate online at aba.org give or call us at 800-850-850. 2473 and give what you can programming at the ABA is highly cost efficient and your donation will go directly to resources for young birders and the whole community of people who care about birds and birding again that website is aba.org/give and the phone number is 800 850 2473 thank you for ensuring a bright future for birds and for birders and Good birding to all of you.
1: Hello, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. It is the end of the month, so it's time for this month in birding. We have a great panel, so I will keep this stuff up top short, but I do have one short institutional announcement to make. As you might expect, we at the ABA end up collecting, a lot of stuff in our library. We are trying to give it away to ABA members via a series of drawings this year. We're doing it slightly differently. We're asking you to opt into these drawings if you're interested. This is to make sure that people who get the items actually want them. Uh, In the past when we've done membership drawings, sometimes we get folks who have no idea why they're receiving a book and maybe don't even want it. We'd like to prevent that. We wanna make sure the people who get these items appreciate them at least. So if you're interested and you are an ABA member, please go to aba.org slash ABA hyphen giveaway. It's a link in the notes to get further instructions. Our friends at Princeton University Press have donated five copies of Christopher Leahy's Birdpedia to get us started. It is an engaging illustrated compendium of bird facts and bird lore. That sounds great. There's there's also way more to come. Good luck to those who get their names in the drawing. So here we go. This myth and Birding with Orieta Estrada, Gabriel Foley, and Miko Jimenez, all after this week's rare birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of July 2021. We have two first records to note as we head into the official beginning of fall migration and post-breeding dispersal season, both of which play a role In the birds I'll highlight this week, I don't actually know if there is an official beginning of fall migration. It probably starts about three days after spring migration finishes up. But anyway, down to Mississippi, where a curlew sandpiper in Quitman County represents a state first. Curlew sandpiper is one of the more regular Eurasian shorebird vagrants in the ABA area, though most of those records perhaps expectedly come from both coasts. This record leaves only five states in the lower 48, as best as I can determine, without Curlew-Sandpiper records for the record. And please correct me if I'm wrong. These are Idaho, Wyoming, Arizona, Oklahoma, and West Virginia. And if you want to include Canada, you can have the three northern territories of Nunavut, plus Northwest and Yukon territories. So if birders in those places want a challenge, there you go. Over now to Maryland, where a little egret in Anne Arundel County would be a state first and part of an increasing number of little egret records in places where snowy egrets are more common. My personal theory is that this species, which is nesting in increasing numbers in the Southern Caribbean, is overlooked in the Southeast because who wants to pour through dozens, if not hundreds, of snowy egrets? But they're there for the birder with patience. That's all I got for you this week. For the whole spiel, you can check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert every Friday at aba.org slash RBA. You can also get the information as soon as it happens, at least most of the time, on our ABA Rarity Sharing Facebook group. Or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. It is the last episode of the American Birding Podcast for July, and that means it's time for this month in birding. As usual, we've got a great panel that I am excited to introduce, so let's get to it. Uh, in alphabetical order first up she's a writer photographer and a maryland master naturalist it's orietta estrada hi orietta
2: hello thank you for having me
1: next new to the this month in birding panel but not to the podcast you might have heard him speaking before on breeding bird atlases he's the coordinator of the maryland atlas welcome back gabriel foley hey nate great to be here yeah and third an outreach biologist for audubon's migratory bird initiative and soon one of those folks studying the intersection of birds, weather, and technology, which has to be very exciting, Miko Jimenez. Hey, Miko.
3: Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
1: Yeah, congratulations so, on that, uh, on going to graduate school, studying bird, what is it, bird movements? Bird? I guess
3: it's aeroecology, technically.
1: Yeah, yeah um, I like that. I like uh, that yeah, studying bird migration
3: <laughs> with radar. Um, and thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited about it.
1: Yeah, that's cool. I, I want to start with an issue that I've, I've seen around all summer, I'm sure you have as well. I have not mentioned it till now because the news around it has been sort of confusing. Uh, it is the report of all these mysterious bird deaths, primarily centered in the mid-Atlantic US. So perhaps it's useful that I have some birders from the mid-Atlantic here today. <laughs> um, for a long time, I had a hard time separating the talk about this mystery from the summertime finch eye disease talk yeah. that sort of inundates bird message boards and Facebook groups every year this mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. Uh, for starters this this new thing seems to be affecting mostly starlings jays and crackles so sort of larger perching birds with a wide ranging diet um, i have not seen any of this firsthand so there's maybe an out of sight out of mind thing going on here um, but there are toxicologists working on it lots of potential culprits i'm curious if your experience is similar to mine whether you've seen the effects of this disease or whether you have any insights into its cause. Have you heard any sort of any interesting theories?
4: Yeah, because I am sort of at a loss. I I haven't actually seen uh like the the eye thing happening right? or anything. But, you know, once COVID hit, we started walking the same patch last year. It's like a mile and a half just across the street from us. And we walked it every day, um, uh, birding it in the mornings. Mm-hmm. And we never noticed any dead birds until Earlier this spring, when all of a sudden we just I think we had like three or four cat birds within a couple weeks really? of each other, dead just uh, like laying by the the sidewalk or like under a tree or something. adult birds adult birds and that's before weird. all of this had like been reported or anything. so mm-hmm. is it just a complete coincidence? Is it related? I don't know, but that's mm-hmm. the only like thing that I've noticed that is kind of related.
1: I have not had any experiences with this. And maybe that has more to do with the fact that, you know, it's been hot and muggy and it's been hard to get me outside doing some <laughs> birding uh, lately, but uh, it evidently has not hit the Carolinas where I live, at least not in any sort of significant sense. But still, a lot of the wildlife departments and nat- natural resources departments are encouraging people to take their feeders down. I don't, I don't feed birds anyway, but I, don't, I haven't been able to find a lot of a consensus on this.
3: I'm kind of in the same boat, I guess, of like, yeah. I haven't seen, I haven't seen anything personally, you know, I haven't seen anything at my feeders that looked suspicious, uh, you know, but obviously now I've taken them down, but I guess I've heard some anecdotes of like people mm-hmm. having seen sick birds, but like no one personally. So right. I'm kind of in that same boat where it's just like, I'm going off of, you know, obviously taking my feeders down, taking the bird bass down because that's what I'm reading. But, you know, it's nothing that I've, I've seen on, on a personal level.
2: I feel like as soon as we recovered from um, the siskins having salmonella, <laughs> then right, right. all of a sudden this popped up because I, I remember it was, you know, we were told, take down your feeders because the, the siskins are passing around salmonella. So I took down my feeders, I think in like January or February mm-hmm. yeah, this year. That. And then in March, early April, it was like, I started to hear like chatter about birds dying randomly and you know it wasn't the the house finch eye disease so i i took my feeders down in april so i i haven't had my feeders up in in a while and um i i live in a very rural part of maryland and uh next to my home there's this very large uh horse arena um which is open you know we have like hundreds of starlings that Mm -hmm. hang out there um and I have, I have not seen one dead starling or dead bird. Um, since this has been reported, we have lots of jays, we have lots of grackles. Um, I I haven't, I haven't seen anything that the only thing that I saw that I thought was odd was a house finch that was missing a lot of feathers from, um, its crown, but that, Mm -hmm. that it doesn't, you know, go with what, Is being recorded Right. Yeah. I I, I don't
1: even know that that would necessarily strike me as particularly unusual. Yeah. I mean, you see birds missing feathers all the time. It's just. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and I saw that and I was like, I mean, could this be it? Then I was like, "Mm, I mean, it it could, but it, I mean, but but no, I haven't seen anything, but it's, but then again, I've taken down my feeders. I'm, you know, they're sitting there. Well, I didn't take them down. They're just sitting there empty. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I still have like, you know, sunflowers growing and the birds are, foraging and in, in the grass and everything, but I, I have not seen anything.
1: No. Yeah. One of the more interesting theories that I saw was one that was put up by uh, Julie Zicaboos. I don't know if any of you guys saw this as well, um, having to do with, apparently there's, there's like a neurological effect, like birds just sort of acting weird and not being able to fly. And, and she suggested that it might've had something to do with um, insecticide use that has increased because of the uh cicada outbreak the 17 year cicada outbreak you know people were Mm. thinking that apparently there was a big push of insecticide companies basically saying like if you don't want these cicadas around as if there's any way that you could possibly stem the tide when those (laughs) cicadas are coming out if you don't want them around you know spray this on your ground and you'll be able to take care of it and of course the birds are coming around especially birds like starlings and jays and uh grackles Eating the cicadas and then having this effect, and she she suggested that like the map of where this outbreak, where these outbreaks had occurred, was sort of you know more or less identical to the map of the the broodex outbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was really interesting. It made a lot of sense to me that you know maybe mm-hmm. people are using these pesticides more and the birds are being affected, uh, which would explain why we're not really seeing it spreading outside this area. But like I have no idea. Like this was just a, a theory that I saw hypothesized and um yeah
2: that's that's that is interesting um so i i grew up in this area um not mm-hmm. this specific area of maryland but w- w- um in nova or northern virginia which is for those who aren't familiar is the dmv so we're basically like um a metropolitan area that includes dc parts of maryland and virginia mm-hmm. i remember the brood x when i was a kid Mm-hmm. And then I remembered them in my twenties. <laughs> I'm aging myself. <laughs> and then <laughs> this is my third time with Brutex. Um, and X I will say veteran. just <laughs> with <laughs> anecdotally, I will <laughs> I will say anecdotally that I was shocked by the the lack of in of numbers of, of the cicadas. Hmm. So it makes sense to associate the cicadas with insecticide use, et cetera. Um, you know, because I, when I was a kid, like, I think it was like 86 or 87 when I first experienced them. I didn't know what they were. No, you know, information didn't travel the way it travels now. Right. <laughs> so, right.
1: Um,
2: I was no terrified. No citizen science project. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <keep track laughs> there was none of, of that. Broods i was I was terrified, but, um, you know, they would cover the the trunks of the trees, like cover the trunks of mm-hmm. the trees, like re- like all over the place. That was not the case this year, so you know, people were really worried about um the females laying eggs on young trees or trees yeah. that were not like established, and so i mean that I could see that making sense, but i I haven't seen anything in the literature that says that's something right, but it doesn't yeah. mean it's not,
0: you know, yeah.
4: Yeah, it, it's really interesting that you say that, Orietta, because like I've never experienced these cicadas before coming from Canada, and I was super excited about it. I read everything, everything that I could get my hands on about them and all of these reports, you know, of just like not being able to hear the birds when you're out and mm-hmm. just like, you know, having to shout if you're in a to talk to somebody, if you're in a really mm-hmm. high density area. and. This is what I was expecting the cicadas to be like. And yes, they were amazing. And the numbers were astounding compared to, you know, what you might see otherwise. But it it never lined up with my expectations of what I had read about hmm. everywhere mm-hmm. that I went. And I may not have gone to the right locations. Um, you know, there may have still, this still may have occurred in other areas. But yeah, I never really experienced this like real, just overwhelming sense of of cicadas, yeah, to me that that's a certain in,
3: such an interesting thing like it makes me think of this kind of shifting baseline that we have right of mm. like it's for someone growing up now, if, if this is their first time experiencing the you know the the cicadas and they they don't have that historical perspective, that's their new baseline for like this huge cicada mm. you know population. A huge, you know, uh, boom in that population. And um, people have talked about that. in like, just within the context of ecology of just like, that's what makes it hard to really detect, you know, that's why we need data. Mm-hmm. Uh, is because it, it makes it hard if you're going off of an anecdotal evidence of mm-hmm. you know, how do you detect these things? That shifting baseline idea, I just find so
4: fascinating. And this is sort of a good example of that. Yeah, we did notice um, our apartment building was built in like the last 10 or 15 years. So after the last emergence happened and you could absolutely see uh that in the area where the uh, the building would have been constructed there were no cicadas that were emerging but if you went just outside of that that area where (laughs) the ground would have been left undisturbed you had cicadas coming up
2: (sighs) it makes me so sad because that's you know, that's part of my growing up and experiencing these. And I was so excited for my kids to see them. And, you know, it, it became a thing where like we would go out at night to see them coming up from the ground. And it was like, well, here's one. Like, I think <laughs> we had about the same amount of uh, Brudex cicadas as we do as the annual ones or the oh, really? the other ones. and And so it's like Miko said. You know, the baseline is shifting and that's that's a problem because how do we show how how crucial these these systems are to, to younger generations? You know, exactly.
1: <laughs> I do remember a few years ago when um, Brood 4, I think it was Brood 4, came up in uh, where I live uh, in, in North Carolina. And um, there were places where there were lots of them. Like I could go to a place where it was loud. Now, deafening, I don't know. Like I, I don't know how to judge that. There's no, uh, there's no like quantitative way to determine mm. like what is deafening and what is not. <laughs> but um, I could go to places like in in some of the game lands when I was birding that summer where it was hard to hear birds. Um, but in town, not a lot. Not yeah. a lot of cicadas. So,
4: I just yeah. imagine like being a nymph waiting 17 years, you know, and then crawling up and hitting this like new concrete floor and being like, oh.
2: Yeah. oh my gosh. That is, that's really sad. But it
1: is interesting to think about how that might affect the the bird populations. Like people were sort of predicting maybe a boom in, uh, in breeding birds um, and whether or not, you know, these birds are sort of, you know, focusing on these cicadas. And therefore, if there's a sort of toxin that is that is affecting them, then, you know, they're going to get hit. It, it strikes me as really interesting that the birds that are most affected by this by this disease or whatever seem to be the same sorts of birds that eat the same sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like warblers. It's not necessarily, you know, yeah. sparrows. It's, it's starlings, jays, grackles, catbirds, as you say. I would put them in that sort of, you know, wide-ranging diet. Um, Those are the sort of birds that are most affected. So maybe there is something to this.
2: Those uh, chemicals stay within um, organisms' body, so then it's consumed. And then those animals at the higher trophic levels are impacted by that, Mm. whether it's like directly or because of an accumulation of those, of those, I guess, toxins. Um,
1: That was certainly, you know, makes sense that, you know, larger birds would be more affected than smaller birds.
4: Um, in, In the literature, there has been a, uh, a real, like, paucity of data collected on what birds actually eat cicadas as yes. well. If you go back and you actually try to find documentation of it in studies, they, they pretty much focused on, like, well, red wing blackbirds, you know, here's a study on just red wings or house sparrows. Or I went back and tried to make a list, and I could only find, like, maybe 15 or 20 species. So I actually made, like, a Google form and, and put it out. And I thought, you know, Maryland birders maybe would just you know, give me 50 or 100 responses, and we'd add a couple of species. But this form ended up going a lot further. And we got almost a 1000 responses from wow. like, eight wow. or nine different states. Um, I haven't even really had a chance to look at it. But I know there's over 50 species of birds that have been documented yeah, eating potatoes on this. And I'm really excited to uh, dive into it and like, see not just how many uh, different species do we get, but how many how many grackle responses do we get in proportion mm-hmm. to like you know red headed woodpeckers or something yeah,
1: it'd be interesting to see if that tracks with yeah. uh with the birds affected by this, yeah yeah, that's interesting.
3: It's hard to not look at the situation and see like the parallels between, <laughs> yeah, totally. you know, our past year. And <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want this to get misconstrued. I'm not saying the two are related at all. <laughs> but what I am saying is that the situation is similar of just like, we don't know what's going on. Like information is coming out as, as it's figured out basically. And there's like, there's this just mysterious illness. And the optimist in me is just through the pandemic, I think a lot of public health gaps were pointed out, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm hopeful that you know, a similar, you know, we'll point out similar things for kind of wildlife health here. And, you know, one thing I was reading about was this program that has started up in California. I don't think it's related to this, but, um, the, it's called the Wildlife Morbidity and Mortality Event Alert System. And it's basically huh. uh, through UC Davis and a, a number of like different veterinary partners and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife.
1: It sounds like VARES, you know, the database of, of where people put illnesses after they receive vaccines.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're basically working with wildlife rehabbers, you know, because wildlife rehabbers are obviously on the front lines of a lot of these wildlife diseases. Mm-hmm. And so, like, they're trying to compile that information into reports that can then go out as an alert system. And so, that's a local example. I think it's only in California right now, but they're hoping to expand globally. I wonder if, like, things like this will spur on systems like that that kind of help us detect these things and act quickly.
4: Robert Driver and Alex Bond. Robert Driver is the fellow uh, who introduced the whole bird names issue as we know it now mm-hmm. uh, by proposing that we change McCown's Longspur to Thickbill Longspur, or actually he just proposed that we change the name. Uh, but anyways, Robert Driver and Alex Bond, they wrote and published a paper in the Ibis Journal that is all about changing bird names. It kind of gives this background on uh, the issue. Uh, why is this even you know, something that we need to be concerned about. And then near the end offers things to think about when you're discussing, uh, changing bird names and just gives some suggestions about, about how you should be thinking about, Mm -hmm. about things, things to frame the discussion with. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And I know we have hit bird names for birds a lot on this podcast in this spot. And some people might say too much. I think it's one of the most important issues of the last 18 months. In birding, I mean, what is more common to birders than and birders and ornithologists than like bird names? How we what we call birds—that is effectively putting names to birds—is at a core. Maybe like our hobby. That is that is what our hobby is, and so those names matter. Um, I just thought it was fascinating that Robert and Alex got this in uh, ibis as opposed to one of the uh, American Ornithological Society <laughs> yes. journals. Um, but uh, it, it speaks to sort of the global interest of this topic and just sort of the discussions that we're having right now and the way we're having them. I think they have a real thoughtful way. They, they look at like some of the ways that um, you know, other countries, other languages have approached yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, English is a bit more complicated as in lingua franca. A lot of people use it. Uh, Than say Swedish or or German, but um, you know it's been done, and uh, they've come up with interesting descriptive names. You know, there's no reason to believe that we can't do it too. I know that's you know maybe beating a dead horse at this point, but uh, you know I, I still I still believe that.
3: <laughs> I think that's a big point, honestly. Yeah. Like that was eye-opening for me personally like that struck me that like how much of a precedent there is for this because Mm -hmm. i think so often when we talk about this it turns into like well there are certain people who would say like it's an unprecedented proposal but like globally Mm -hmm. and historically that's i mean what is cool about this paper is you all these examples you know sweden south africa new zealand Mm -hmm. you just see that that's not true and then also taxonomically i'm not sure if you've talked about talked about on the podcast yet nate but Uh, You know, the Entomological Society for America Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, changing both the the name of a moth and an ant, which had included a racial slur in its common name or their common names. Um, You know, there's so much of a precedent for this. And I Mm -hmm. think that this paper really raises that point well.
2: Yeah, I really appreciated that they... Um, the sections called Previous Efforts to Change Problematic Bird Names. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've brought this up before on the podcast, but
1: we, we've read a lot of this up <laughs> <before>. <laughs> <It's> so <excited.
2: laughs> But so I, I lived in Sweden for a really long time. I'm actually a Sweden Swedish citizen. I can I can say that there are other very harmful words previously used in Swedish for like regular everyday things that mm-hmm. have changed. Yeah, there are, will always be people who will rebel against the changing of words because they're like, oh, well, it's just words. Well, you know, words, words matter. Mm-hmm. They're important. And um, it was just really cool to see that Sweden once again had been on the forefront <laughs> of 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 changing um their their bird names. And yeah. why can't why can't we why can't we do it? And why are we waiting? Like, do we really need to wait for for? them there's, to do this. There's a lot to of foot do dragging.
1: Uh, I was in, uh, encouraged by the entomological society basically saying, yeah, we're going to change these. Fine. You will go by the scientific name until we come up with a new common name or a new common name sort of reveals itself because a lot of these words, a lot of these names that we think of as official are sort of colloquialized names that just kind of became
4: the names we use because that's just how language works. One of the things that Bird Names for Birds has been saying um, is that doing this right is really important. Changing the mm. bird names. In the right way is really important that takes a lot of thought and consideration to do well and you know that is by nature a slow process and that's okay in fact that's good but you can make the decision to change the names mm-hmm. you can just say right now today let's change the names we know that that's the direction that we're heading yeah. now let's focus on the process yeah and that is the thing that hasn't happened yet. It's this yeah. really slow, like, well, maybe we will. And, you know, we'll decide which ones we wanna do. And yeah. that's that has been the frustrating part yeah. about it. Because actually coming up with the new names, that's the fun part.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <Absolutely>. yeah. <laughs> like,
1: that's the good stuff. Well, let's get to that and like, have this be a little more of a positive and, and productive experience than constantly having to rehash these these arguments about why we should do it. Because I think that once we start thinking about better bird names, Um, that's going to get a lot of people excited and get a lot of people interested, I think. Totally.
2: You know, I'm not trying to brag or anything, but like, I'm already starting to use, you know, different names for birds. And I I would encourage other people to do so too. Like, I don't know what a Wilson's warbler is anymore, but I know what a black capped warbler is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a process, but still like, you know, my question from before is, why Why are we waiting? Like, I think we're going to be waiting a really long time.
4: Yeah, I think that might be the case. <laughs> but why? The, the longer that we wait, th- this is my thing with waiting, really. The longer that we wait, the more we make the statement that we don't really care about mm. the diversity issues of the name change. Mm-hmm. We care more about the names themselves. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I like when we initially talked about changing the names, it was really just like, what, you know? There's a lot of problems with inclusivity in our community. Let's make the statement that, hey, we don't care so much about the names. We want you to feel included. And yeah, this is a really small way to do it. But hey, we we want you here. And so let, we're just going to change these. And now, you know, we're a year later. Nothing's really happened. We're talking about it. And it really just kind of sets this tone that, yeah, we think about this, but it's not really that much of a priority for us. And I think that's really disappointing. And I think the community can can do better. And you know? not to mention one problem that is cited regularly is like
3: that it's like Orietta said, like burgers start using common names and they're different than like what's being used in scientific literature, right? Then that leads to like these kind of confusing, I guess, disagreements between what we're calling things. But the thing is, the longer we drag our feet on it, the longer that kind of festers and like, I think one thing we have to accept is people are going to start doing this. And Mm -hmm. and the longer we drag our feet, that disagreement is only going to get worse. So yeah, I mean, I agree that it it takes time. But I think Gabriel, you're completely right in saying that if we just commit to the process, and said like, that's happening, then that all of a sudden, it's less of, you know, this barrier, and it's more of just an opportunity. And it's an exciting thing. And that's, I think that's what we need to get to.
1: Yeah. Mm, and to that I would mm-hmm. also say like have have these people who worry about lots of different names like looked at a herpetology field guys <laughs> lately yeah. because yeah. oh my god there's like 12 different names for black rat snake and different you know hyphens and spaces and eastern rat snake and eastern black it's it's a mess.
2: And it's going to be okay. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, and we figure it out. In some ways it's it's nice that birders have this sort of standard we all know we're speaking the same language as it were but we figured it out, like Herpers figured it out, mm-hmm. and um, we can do the same with birds.
2: We're not really all speaking the same language either, you, you know. Yeah. Like I, I get it for like the scientific literature that that should be done, but it's not hard, you know. And and statements in, in words without actions behind them, it's window dressing. Yeah, it, it's you know, and and I don't understand why things aren't aren't happening, and why can't another organization say, you know what? we're going to take the lead on this. We're going to be, you know, the trailblazer here.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. The opportunity is there.
2: Take it. Local legends about birds help to preserve language and culture. Um, That's the name of an article published on bbc.com. And before we start with this one, I think this one needs a content warning due to the trauma we'll be talking about in relation to the colonization of indigenous peoples around the world. So that includes assault, physical abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, rape, murder, and cruelty to children, among other things. (laughs) It's just really unbelievable. So the title is Why Local Legends About Birds Matter and the subtitle is, The Stories of Enigmatic Birds Told Through Indigenous Folklore Aren't Just Fascinating Tales, They May Be a Way to Preserve Languages and Cultures at Risk of Extinction. The story that Jim Robbins, who's a veteran eco-journalist, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with, or if you're not, I'm sure you've read his work, The, the story he puts together in this article, I think, comes at a critical time in the news media. And, you know, it's a It's a a story that comes up every so often, and it's good. It needs to keep coming up for the generations um, below us, right? Some people are are just now finding out for the first time about uh, Native American boarding schools. We've been hearing a lot about the Canadian boarding schools. Um, But in the U.S., we had them up until very recently in the 20th century and even in the early 2000s. Um, I'm not sure if there are any currently, although they're they are different now than they were then. So briefly, um, what happened in North America was that after Native Americans were forced onto reservations, their land stolen, their children were taken away and sent to these boarding schools where they suffered unthinkable crimes by overseers of the federal government. One stat that I read on uh, boardingschoolhealing.org claimed that by 1926, 83% of American Indian school age children were attending boarding schools. These children were forbidden and severely punished for speaking their own language. So many of these languages are on the brink of extinction, if not already extinct. And, you know, while in North America, the colonizing languages were largely English and French, uh, in South America, it was mainly Spanish and Portuguese. And it's a very much intended and purposeful product of colonization. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, how does this relate to birds? <laughs> I'm <laughs> getting there. Well, when you desecrate entire cultures, you lose not just the cultural richness of a group of people, you lose what's in the science too. Birds are usually like a gateway to the natural world, mm-hmm. right? I I actually came into birding through environmentalism. But, you know, other people might um, come into birding and then go off to be a Herper or be somebody who's way into leps or even ethno ornithology, which is covered in this article, um, which is so cool, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, and this uh, very small discipline of ethno ornithology is really just one facet of like this huge problem that we will be facing um, and how we how we advance pharmacology and maybe potentially how we survive as a species in the future. That's one, one piece of it. Uh, we can, I have so much more to say about this, but (laughs) I I don't want to, I don't want to dominate the conversation here. So.
1: I think this article is really, really interesting because, you know, they, they specifically say like, we're using birds, we're using interest in birds as a way to continue the stories, the traditions, the languages, of these uh of these peoples, uh, because everyone has bird stories. I mean, we've talked about this before. Like everyone has a bird story. Uh, and it's the same with uh, indigenous cultures as it is, you know, you and me and all the people around us. Like, and these bird stories are often unique, but there's just so much information uh out there and so much uh what we can learn from people who have tens of thousands of years of uh experience with these birds. There's some really cool stories in here about how. Especially in Australia, where ornithologists collaborated with the indigenous peoples to document some behaviors in birds and publish it in a paper. I thought that was super cool.
2: Yeah, that, that fire hawk was yeah, pretty exactly. amazing. I mean, it so it totally
1: makes sense that yeah. that behavior would be observed by people and, and who would be fascinated by it.
2: <laughs> yeah. It, I thought that was a really good example of how not to like co opt or like yeah. appropriate an indigenous culture, which happens a lot. And yeah. you know, that told a really nice story between, you know, the relationship between people and nature, right? Mm -hmm. So so the firehawk, they the indigenous group in Australia, they call um whistling kites firehawks. So firehawks pick up flaming twigs from one fire to start another fire in order to flush out prey. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) This is (laughs) a cool behavior.
1: (laughs) And it makes sense that people, if anyone would look at that and be like, Jeez, what are they what are they doing? That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah.
3: So I thought this article was really cool and very fascinating. Um I've one example that stuck out to me was the uh the indigenous people of Papua New Guinea mm-hmm. and the song maps that they talked about. Oh, that, was, mm-hmm. that was so cool. Yeah, right. Yeah. And there are these maps. Well, they're essentially these songs about um deceased family members um and how they interacted, you know, how they where places where they hunted, places where they gardened. So researchers actually like listened to those songs and found those locations on a map, and there were like more than 7,000 locations, they actually ended up using those maps to negotiate, um, you know, unfortunately, the mm-hmm. right of way for an Exxon nat- natural gas pipeline. <laughs> which like, it was just like...
1: Win some, <laughs> lose some. Yeah, exactly. I
3: know. But it, it, I mean, it's to me, that example really just points out like, this knowledge is like, it's not just like figurative or like metaphor. These are things that can like be... We have Esri Maps, like we have careers dedicated to like mapping natural resources. And they've been doing this the whole time just in a different way that doesn't look the same as ours, right? And that can be applied. That's the type of knowledge that we're losing that I Mm -hmm. think is very important and, uh, you know, huge for conservation. And it's really sad to think about, I guess.
2: The project mentioned in the article, um, it's the Ethno Ornithology World Atlas. That's uh, EWAtlas.net what they've done is that they've created these gis like this gis like map in which um local experts and researchers and local conservationists can um collaborate and upload information about birds as they relate to cultures in places across the globe uh, it's it's so cool like it makes me wish i could go back to school and study ornithology um, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so so they they you know as Nico as mentioned, with the Basavi people of New Guinea, they use birdsong uh, to create these maps and um, researchers, uh, you know, put, I guess, I don't know, pen to paper or coding to Python to GIS. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> whatever <this thing> is. <laughs> um, So, so yeah, so they, they're trying to achieve this goal of mapping the languages, the stories, the cultures. Uh, and and the birds uh, without appropriating um, the knowledge which is which is cool and and how they attempt to do this is by including the people they're putting on these maps like like um mm-hmm. the Australian researchers uh, did with the the Aborigines in the fire with the firehawk you know and the people involved have consented to the use of their languages and knowledge for this purpose and this isn't just about diversity of perspective or inclusion by the Eurocentric point of view of what inclusion means. It's about existing in the first place. You know, mm. it, it's mm-hmm. quite literally about being and not needing to be part of the Eurocentric point of view. So I, I think this is such an important project.
4: We hold Western science up as being the gold standard for yeah. pretty much everything. and there is a ton of value in how we conduct science and in the scientific method but that doesn't mean that it's the only way or that it's the only way with value the perspectives of indigenous people are valid and valuable all on their own they don't need to be placed in that that casing of of how we do science to be valuable mm-hmm. they have their their own all on their own the way that they interact with the world is different um and that is that is good, and that is valid, and that is, you know, okay. And you you were saying this this at the start, Orietta. You know, through the colonization process, and then everything afterwards, we have systematically tried to not just diminish that, but erase that. Oh yeah. And you know, look look at our look at our own birding community. <laughs> Do you know any indigenous birders? You know why why is that? Why mm. is there Why do we not see that in our community?
2: I read this study um, to prepare for this podcast. Um, (laughs) It was just published (laughs) in June in in PNAS, and it's called Language Extinction Triggers the Loss of Unique Medicinal Knowledge. And this study claims that 30% of the world's 7,400 languages, that's 30% of the world's 7,400 languages will no longer be spoken by the end of the century. So wow. the study, yeah, <laughs> in the study, the contributors, the contributors uh, focused on three regions that have high biocultural diversity: so North America, Northwest Amazonia, and New Guinea. And they found that over seventy-five percent of the close to thirteen thousand medicinal plant services, so like um, like a plant service, it's like an ecosystem service. So like a a plant that has a medical purpose. Um, so seventy-five percent. Of those thirteen thousand medicinal plants, are you ready for this? Are only known to one language. Mm. Wow, that's a big deal, and that, that 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 will have like impacts across across the globe. Much of our medicine comes from the natural world; it doesn't mm-hmm. come yeah. from synthesized materials, right? So, essentially, that means you know. If you lose the language, you lose the knowledge, you lose yeah. the science, and and some people might think, you know, oh well, why not just document it or write it down? And well, among indigenous cultures, <laughs> you it's have to know to the trans- language to do well, that. <laughs> well, you have to know the language to do that, but also yeah. in these cultures, it's common to transmit knowledge orally. Mm-hmm, so, in mm-hmm. order for the Nothing science certain. to be kept alive, it has to be shared wi- widely. But it but it can't be shared if the language goes extinct. And
4: mm-hmm.
2: I mean. You know, we just need to take a look at what's happened in Brazil with the pandemic to to know that, you know, the extinction of um these languages and, you know, the the damage that's being done to these indigenous cultures still across the globe via colonization um is just being accelerated. Mm-hmm. so
1: even as as someone that is not a a scientist by any stretch of the imagination, um I just I mean, I just like knowing these things. I like knowing these stories, I like knowing these names. I, I i I guess I'm just like a collector of information. I'm sure a lot of <laughs> birders are. like we just like to know it's it's fascinating to look at these these languages that are endangered or on the verge of becoming extinct and knowing that there's information about birds and nature that is, you know, and potentially being lost. There's some really wonderful names. We're we talking about bird names. There's some really wonderful names of birds uh, yeah. from some from other cultures. Many of them are onomatopoeic. You know, Many of them have to do with the behavior. That's the stuff that you know we really like. I, you know, I, I looked at uh, something like whippoorwill, for instance, <laughs> um, has like a bunch of uh, indigenous names, as you would expect. It's a hard sound to miss if you are <laughs> out in the woods in the <laughs> east. And um, almost all of them are onomatopoeic names. Like there's some. Yeah. There's some derivation of uh, of whip or will. I know uh, the, one, the only one I can think of offhand is um, the Cherokee name, which is like Waguli. Lee. That's the rhythm of the name. And there's just so much yeah. cool mm. stuff out there that um, I, I just think is, is such a loss if we if we don't know it, if we don't document it, if we don't protect it, and the people who speak it.
4: And, and yet that that bird names paper that we were talking about earlier, they say in there that the only indigenous name in North America that we continue to use is for Sora.
2: Sora, hmm. yeah. And yeah. that language is gone. So they don't even know what language Sora hmm. came from.
4: Wow.
3: <laughs> it's really interesting talking about this after, after having just talked about the bird names for birds movement. Mm-hmm. And like, there's just so many levels still. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the through line is like what we call things matters. Um, but mm-hmm. then there's just like these levels. We're talking about changing these individual names within our language. And then there's also the level of like, there are, I mean, as Orietta brought up, that like languages are going extinct. And that's, yeah. I mean, it's tough to stomach. I'm like, yeah, it's, it puts a lot of what we're trying to do into perspective of it's not a big, I don't know. It's, yeah.
2: I like what you brought up, Nate, about the on on a monopo on I don't really
1: you just know say what the adjective is. You just say it for me because I,
2: I can't do it. So the, the birds with names with Ona is, is the name. So much easier to spill that than it is to say it, by the way. <laughs> yeah. um, but I but I always use this example because those those bird names don't work for me. Oh and really? Oh because they, they're not. They yeah. Ne- they don't work for me. You know, dogs bark differently in English, French,
0: <laughs> Spanish,
2: uh-huh. Swedish, and all over the world. They all have a different bark. Pe- you know, it's all interpreted differently. It is. So yeah. I have a story. Can I share a story with you all? Yeah, go
1: for it. Yeah.
2: Okay. So this story um, was shared with me orally by a friend who, um, he he hails from Mexico, and he was told this story orally by someone in the Yucatan Peninsula. So, and you, tell me if you can guess which bird this is, okay? (laughs) Okay, great. Okay. You're going to test me (laughs) on my Mexican bird (laughs) (laughs) localization. Perfect. You're being graded. Yeah. (laughs) Thousands of years ago, there was a fire in the jungle where the Maya people had their cornfields. And the fields were getting burned, which meant that there would be no corn. A bird flew through the fire to salvage some of the corn so that the Maya people would be able to replant and replenish once the fires were extinguished. The bird flew through the flames but was not burned. However, its eyes turned red. Mm -hmm. For its heroic efforts to save the corn, to save the Maya people, the Mayan gods rewarded the bird by telling it that from now on, other birds... Are going to take care of your eggs and your young. Ha ha! Uh, Which bird is this?
4: This must be the shiny cowbird. Or bronze cowbird. Or bronze cowbird. Mm. Yeah, cowbird.
2: Yeah, bronze cowbird. Okay. So because shiny so, has
4: dark eyes. There
1: yeah. You go. So the
2: bronze <laughs> cowbird. So it's the bronze cowbird. So, but here that's cool. I like and, it. Isn't it nice? But here yeah. and elsewhere, you know, these birds are villainized because of the pressure they put on on other bird species. Right. So right. Who's right?
1: Because our puritanical views about child rearing right. and whatnot.
2: <laughs> well, 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 who's right? You know, like cultures in this same area also associate migratory birds with their ancestors coming to visit them. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. like their ancestors. That's deep respect. Meanwhile, you know, as as Miko mentioned, you know, we're tapping natural gas deposits. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. we're, you know, we're polluting waterways. We recently set the ocean on fire. And we're burning down habitat in the West for gendering children before birth, you know, like, like who's right, you know, who's right about, about this. So, you know, I don't have an answer. I'm just asking questions, but like, I thought that was a really interesting and very beautiful story about a largely villainized, a widely villainized bird.
1: I'll certainly look at bronze cowbirds differently, (laughs) though they are very pretty. It's a very nice bird. Once you get past the cowbird thing, which a lot of people the, the cowbird
2: thing is just really fascinating. It's I think weird. they're they're so cool. They are. I, cool. I, it's a cool mm. behavior. Earlier this month,
3: uh, the Music Box Theater in Chicago announced that they'll be debuting a documentary on Monty and Rose. On Labor Day weekend, twenty twenty one, Monty and Rose. um, Just a quick recap. In case by some miracle you missed the story, (laughs) um, you know, piping plovers historically bred in the Great Lakes in Chicago, uh, including Chicago, I should say, but rapidly declined in the twentieth century. Only about a dozen pairs were still hanging on in the until like nineteen ninety, and then in twenty nineteen, Monty and Rose, a pair of uh, of plovers, basically bred and fledged chicks for the first time in Chicago since nineteen forty eight. And so this documentary covers that whole story, right? It covers um, when Monty and Rose arrived. um, And I just think it's exciting to know that this story is going to get out there in a different way and potentially to kind of a different audience, right? To like non-birders, I guess. Yeah. But also I just... I. I know that we beat this story to death when it first happened, right? <laughs> but I think something funny happens when we when a story gets a lot of press is that we almost like kind of overcompensate and like discount how seriously cool mm-hmm. it is. So yeah. like, I just want to take true. a chance two years later to uh, recognize how cool and exciting this was ecologically, but also just socially, because the whole social side of the story is that, um there was a whole city behind this pair of endangered birds, right? Federally endangered Mm -hmm. uh, population. And, you know, just to cite a few exciting things that happened, you know, the Chicago Ornithological Society and the Great Lakes Audubon organized a whole team of volunteers to basically monitor them, as far as I understand, 24 hours a day when they were there. Wow. Um, They also were successful in deterring a festival that was supposed to be held on Montrose Beach, you know, things like that. There's one thing that gets me going. It's this idea of Kind of, as a city person, that we can convert civic pride into conservation action. And this was just such a good example of that. You know, I saw the the uh, trailer, and it looks like that's what the documentary will be covering. so i'm I'm really excited to see it. um and I just like again, I think it's like worth taking a step back and like realizing or remembering that this is a really awesome story. and in a world of kind of conservation uh, doom and gloom, this is a really <laughs> positive one. and from my perspective, it's just such a cool urban ecology. Uh, thing. And I, I liked revisiting it. So I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see the documentary. And I'm, I'm hoping, um, yeah, it'll cover a lot of that.
1: Yeah, I agree. That is a, a really interesting angle to the story about you know the city coming together, you know, helping these birds along. Uh, and in case people didn't notice, they're called Monty and Rose because they're on Montrose Beach. I suppose they could come up with worse names, but um, yeah, it's 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 super cool, especially the story about how they kept the the festival off yeah. the beach, which I thought was really. Weird. I mean, it's it was um, was, was it electric dance moves music? festival um so maybe they they did everybody a favor uh, for that. hey <laughs> don't at me don't hey. at me <laughs> hey
2: former dj here okay. all, right, all, right, okay. all, right, Let's all right keep all right, the all right. vibe cool okay <laughs>
1: good vibes good vibes <laughs> um, i apologize but um yeah i agree with you miko it's a really cool story and um chicago has a ton to be proud of with the with
2: these with these lovers. Certainly. Yeah. I, I, you can't, we can't see each other. We're, we're not doing this by, by video, but I have like a giant smile on my face. Like this story just made me so happy. And it, it is one of those stories that, you know, gives me personally, you know, some inspiration and hope that we can have more events like this happening, not just for, you know, birds that are on the brink, but just birds in general. Right. Like exactly or even the cicadas. Okay. Like, like yeah. let's, let's, let's be mindful. Like, I, I mean, yeah, it, I, it's such a nice story. I used to live in Chicago. Um, so I familiar with some of those areas. So, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, that's cool to hear. And I, I mean, have you birded Montrose before?
2: I was not a birder when I lived in Chicago.
3: Okay. Well, <laughs> no. So it's funny you should say that because I grew up like really close to Montrose and I would go there all the time. I did not grow up a birder. Um, but like I played, I grew up playing volleyball there. I used to go to like they had live reggae shows every Thursday, and so like in high school, like Montrose was my summer spot with my friends. And nice. it just really highlights to me like why urban green spaces are so cool because they're multi use. Mm-hmm. I mean they're used for so many different things. And so like this place that means I have all these high school memories and like you know I hung out with friends and like went to the beach all the time. I then I grew up and realized it's an amazing birding spot. And then you know, you know, two years later there's like a federally endangered breeding pair of birds there. Um I just it it really it hits all this story just to me it hits all like the the feel-good urban <laughs> ecology awesome. things that I want it to. And I I'm never gonna not be excited about it anytime anyone brings it up, no matter how <laughs> often we talk about it. <laughs>
2: yeah and piping plovers are so cool i had my lifer piping plovers there was like a group of five of them in maryland um in 2018 and i heard them before i saw them um and they they sound like church pipes
0: (laughs) they really do when they're singing
2: or uh calling all together like it's really like beautiful (laughs) it's so amazing yeah
1: For this month's question of the month, the Summer Olympics are going on right now in Tokyo. I don't know about you, I've been, you know, just kind of had it as background noise for a lot of what I've been doing the last few days. It is a chance for people to watch a lot of sort of unusual sports that don't usually get on TV outside of the Olympics. So my question for you all is, what Olympic sport do you enjoy and what bird would be the best competitor in that event?
4: I'm not really a sports guy, um, and like at all. Um, <laughs>
2: Sorry, and, so,
4: th- birding's a sport. so
2: birding's a sport.
4: Birding's a sport. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so <clears throat> the, about the only like sports um, exposure that I've had recently has been talking to my friend Kathy Calvert, another birder here in Maryland. Or it, I think I think you know Kathy. I
2: might know Kathy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: and she really loves tennis. So mm-hmm. so I went for tennis on this, um, and I think that that the the best bird. I've got to pick a Canadian bird, right? Fair Something enough. That breeds in Canada. Fair enough. I think the best bird for tennis has got to be sandhill crane. You know, oh, they just okay. they, they look like like they could wear the like short shorts and kind of pull them up, you know, <laughs> and and they can wear the little the little band and, and I can just yeah. I can see, I see it, it in my head. Yeah. So I'm picking tennis and sandhill crane.
2: I can't unsee that in my head now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good image. I like that.
1: Yeah, and when they do that little dance thing, <laughs> right? the pair bonding so thing, yeah, it's, you like can it's
3: like mixed doubles. It's like- <laughs> mixed doubles.
1: <Yeah.
4: laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. So I give
3: this some thought, maybe too much thought, because I have two good. answers. <laughs> that's how I like But it. I'll, yeah. make, I'll make them quick. One sport is equestrian, mm-hmm. and I would choose cattle egret. Because oh, they have, have yeah. an yeah. identity yeah. for... Standing on, uh, you know, cattle, (laughs) yeah, and then also, uh, diving. I'm choosing northern gannet,
1: yeah, which is probably an unfair
3: advantage because they fly and dive, but yeah,
1: it'd be an interesting, um, it'd be interesting gold medal race between northern gannet, brown pelican, and osprey, Mm. (laughs) yeah, yeah. But northern gannet would do the synchronized diving because if you've ever seen those big flocks out on the ocean, (laughs) yeah, all of them going in together,
2: okay, so, um. Mine, mine is uh, skateboarding. Um, mm-hmm. We're a big skateboarding family. Um, so uh, I, I got to pick that crow in Russia. Remember that YouTube video <laughs> from like 10 years ago? <laughs> oh, where there's, there's that crow in Russia using a plastic lid to slide down yes, a roof yes. in yeah. the snow like over <laughs> and over. Okay, that's, that's one. Okay, but my, my second contender for that same category is the spinning roof vent pigeon. Do you know what I'm talking? Which one? I'm t-
1: I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh my gosh!
2: <laughs> it's a pigeon, like a um, like a rock uh, rock dove, right? Okay, yeah, a feral pigeon, um, s- sitting on one of those like metal, m- metal, aluminum, like spinning roof vents. And it's just sitting on it and it's like spinning in circles. (laughs) There's a YouTube video for it too. And it's probably also 10 years old. Um, But, but if you don't know them, definitely YouTube them. But um, yeah, those are, those are my skating picks.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So um, the problem with going last is that people will come up with what my uh, options were. So (laughs) diving Uh was one of mine. Uh, And I did think of equestrian as well. Except I was thinking like oxpeckers, which oh. uh, hang on to, to, to rhinos. But uh, cattle egret is actually a much better choice. Um, if I were going to go really basic, I would probably say something like, uh, you know, the swimming events with like a common loon or a mm-hmm. cormorant or an anhinga or something along those lines or any sort of penguin. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of drawing a blank because all I can think of are like... Uh, Uh, team sports and i don't know of any team birds oh here we go so um uh basketball and i don't know if you know about uh greater ani the the nesting behavior of the greater ani Mm -mm. essentially uh they have this this communal nesting strategy where all the greater anis in this little colony will lay their eggs in one giant nest and then they were all kind of take turns uh incubating it so um i feel like they could really protect the rock as it were Oh, I like that. (laughs)
2: That's
3: awesome. That's That's really good. I like that. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much, Miko, Gabriel, Orietta. You can find all their stuff. I'll have links to everything we talked about in the show notes and also to them on social media. You should absolutely follow them. They are a lot of fun, as you can see. And uh, thank you so much, all three of you for joining me. And uh, we'll see you again soon.
2: This was fun. Thank you.
4: This was great. This was fun.
1: The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you like this podcast, you can support it by joining the ABA. Members are automatically subscribed to our great magazines. You get discounts to partners like Beauty Books and the Corner Lab of Ornithology, opportunities to travel with us, and of course, the knowledge that you are helping to support birding here and abroad. Get information at aba.org join. I do have some special shout outs to make this week. Greg and Martha Swick of Ozark, Missouri, that is a name in a place that sounds familiar. Uh, Max Miller of Denver, Colorado. Emily Ratsip of Ottawa, Ontario. Josh Jackson of Decatur, Georgia. Nick Watmo of Norwich, UK. Michelle Sutton of Highland, New York. Kristen Garlock of Saline, Michigan. Evans Lodge of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Eric Ross of Kansas City, Missouri. Eric Strufert of Met Lake, Ontario. And Jake Riavi of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. All of these folks recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you all so much for that. It really does mean a lot. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who notes that if badminton at its core is just chasing a birdie around, then Northern Goshawk is going to take that one going away. Technical production this week is once again by John Lowry. He is back and trying to make the case that a flock of bush tits would win the gold for artistic gymnastics, provided that the apparatus is a suet cage. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who argue that rowing would better be called crowing and involves various aerial acrobatics and basic problem solving skills. You know, I'd probably watch that. You can find us online at ABA.org and on the various social medias as American Birding Association or ABA. I think that while the idea for the Olympics is great, the International Olympic Committee is needlessly corrupt and should, in fact, be replaced by another IOC, the International Ornithological Congress, so that they can at least apply their taxonomic brainpower to modern pentathlon, because those five events are long overdue for a split. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. And I'll see you next week.